Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. We have looked at those first four verses over the last couple of weeks, and today we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7, uh, 1 John 1. So uh, after you have found that in your Bible, stand with me and let's read it together. 1 John 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the precious promises of your word that uh, we can have our sins completely uh, cleansed. And Lord, we just pray that uh, you would help us today to uh, uh, focus on your truth that we might uh, think through carefully. our own walk with you and where we are, where we stand, what our condition is before you. And, Lord, we pray that your word would accomplish its purpose in our lives. And, Lord, we pray if there's someone here today that's never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that this would be the day they would lay aside all hindrance and all excuse and would recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and would put their full faith and trust in Christ for salvation, for eternal life. And, Lord, we pray that all of us today would uh, would uh, just have minds that are concentrating on you, focused on you, what you have for us this day. We thank you for the privilege of worship. We thank you for the just the joy that we have in the Lord. And uh, we know that all just comes from you. So, Lord, again, we ask that you would bless our worship this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a course in college that was famous for its tests? I remember when I was a student at Oklahoma Baptist University, the one course that everyone feared was called Western Civilization. And all the students were required to take and a high number flunked. The final exam consisted of a multiple-hour essay recalling the events of history by memory. And you've probably been subject to a test like that at some point in your life as well. But the book of 1 John is famous for its tests. In this book, we find a series of tests that are given by John to cause the false professors of faith to question their salvation and to enable the true professors of faith to gain assurance of their salvation. Today, we're going to look at that first test. Have you ever wondered why there are some professing Christians that do not seem to live much differently from the world, while there are others who are very distinct from the world? Have you ever wondered why 
Some are obviously changed and others are not. Ray Stedman writes, Some Christians, even Christians of long standing, seem still to be very much conformed to the world around them, even deformed in their views and outlooks. And yet all of them stoutly assert that they are Christians, that they too have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. How do we explain that? Are they truly born again? Can you get saved and not really be changed? Is it possible to be spiritually regenerated without showing any evidence of it in your life? Now, some commentators explain this by pointing to the difference between sonship and fellowship. They say that the reason some professing Christians do not look any different from the world is because even though they have become children of God through faith in Christ, they are out of fellowship with God because of sin and compromise. Now, let me be very clear. The Bible does, in fact make a distinction between sonship and fellowship. Those who are truly born again spiritually have, in fact, become children of God, and they can never be anything other than children of God. They can never lose their sonship. They can, however, lose their fellowship with God and with other believers. Sin and compromise can cause them to forfeit that fellowship. I believe that is clearly taught in Scripture. However, that is not what John is talking about in this passage. If you go back to the prologue, verses 1 through 4, you see where he ties the proclamation of the evidence of the humanity of Jesus and believing of that with the entering in of fellowship with God and with other believers. In other words, John seems to be using the idea of entering into fellowship with God as being synonymous with entering into salvation. And then he says in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This seems to be a test to determine whether or not you are truly saved. You can't claim to be in fellowship with God if your life has not been changed. If you're still walking in darkness and not walking in the light, then your claim is false. Now, we're going to look at verse 6 in more detail in just a few moments. But the point I'm making here is that These are tests to see if you're truly born again. And even though John uses the word fellowship, he uses it as a synonym for sonship. He does this by pointing to certain evidences that indicate whether or not a person has, in fact, entered into fellowship with God to begin with. The first test that we will look at this morning, 
that of walking in the light has to do with whether or not a person is truly born again. And even though he uses the term fellowship, his point is that you can't make a legitimate claim to being born again if you're still walking in darkness. Now, before we move into this, notice the first part of verse 5 connects this first test with the prologue. John says, and this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. This connects with the word of life, the historic Jesus, fully God and fully man, and his message. It connects with the message of eternal life and how to enter into fellowship with God and other believers. And this first test involves three elements, the premise, the presumption, and the promise. We begin with the premise. Go back to verse 5 again. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we're going to have fellowship with God, we must understand the basis upon which that fellowship is built. Because of who God is, there are terms upon which we must enter into fellowship with him. And to put it in the simplest terms, since God is light, if we are going to have fellowship with him, we must be walking in the light. There is no darkness in him. So if we're going to have fellowship with him, we cannot be walking in darkness. But let's back up for just a moment. This last phrase of verse 5 is in the form of a parallelism, providing the positive side and also the negative side. It tells us what God is and what he is not. We begin with the positive. The Bible contains three definitive God is type of statements, and all of them are given by John. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 4, verse 24, we're told that God is spirit. Here we're told that God is light, and in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. All three of those statements concerning the nature and character of God are true. But here we're focused on God as light. Now, this may be the most complex of all three of the concepts. This term seems to be more of a metaphor than the other two. Biblically, the concept of light is very complex, and it has a multitude of meanings. For example, sometimes it refers to moral purity. Sometimes it refers to spiritual guidance. Sometimes it speaks of intellectual clarity. And in the case of God, it is even used to describe his actual glory and appearance. And notice that God says, or that John says, God is light. 
He doesn't say God has a light or that he is the source of light, which he is. But it says he is light. God, by his very nature, is light. Hebert says the phrase states not merely that God has light or gives light, but that he himself is light. And although he created light in Genesis 1-3, he himself is uncreated light. Plummer writes, no figure borrowed from the, the material world could give the idea of perfection so clearly and fully as light. This is the nature of God. In the physical material world, we see God's light in the form of his Shekinah glory. In fact, the presence of God in the Old Testament was so brilliant in light that it caused Moses' face to shine after being in his presence. Vine says, as you study the Bible, you notice that every time God shows up on the scene, there is light. For instance, in Genesis 1, we're told that there was darkness upon the face of the deep, and then God came and said, let there be light, and there was light. When God came down in the tabernacle, he came in the Shekinah glory cloud of light. Every time God showed up in the Bible, there was light. The Old Testament describes him in this way in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Barclay says there's nothing so glorious as a blaze of light piercing the darkness. And so to say that God is light tells us of his sheer splendor. It speaks of his incomprehensibly glorious appearance. When God came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, he declared, I am the light of the world. That the transfiguration When Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of his glory, the Bible says his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. So it's clear from Scripture that God is indeed light. But the concept of light is used in various ways in the Bible. One way light is used is as a symbol of truth. In reference to Jesus, John wrote in his gospel, there was the true light coming into the world, which enlightens every man. In Jesus, we are enlightened by God's truth. And in Scripture, we have the lamp of God that guides our feet and lights the path that we should walk. So if we're going to walk in light, we're going to walk according to God's revealed truth. According to the truth. Morally, the concept of light is equivalent to holiness. So to say that God is light is to say he is absolutely holy. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being 
tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Not only is there absolutely no evil in God, he cannot even be tempted by evil. And we know that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was tempted in his humanity. But Hebrews 4.15 makes it clear he was tempted in all things we, like we are tempted, yet he was without sin. So the concept of light also points to moral holiness as well. And we could look at the concept of light as an equivalent to life. John developed that thoroughly in the prologue to his gospel, but we won't take the time this morning to go through that. It's summarized in Jesus' statement in John eight twelve: I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. MacArthur says, God, the source of true light, bestows it on believers in the form of eternal life through his Son, who was light incarnate. So we could see it in terms of the life that God gives. And yet, we see that light really is the perfect metaphor to apply to God. Hebert says, the assertion that God is light is probably as near an approach to a definition of the nature of God that human intelligence can comprehend. It is meaningful to the simplest mind, and yet it is unfathomable to the most profound thinker. God is light. But going back to 1 John 1, 5, John's parallelism also gives the negative side of the equation, and in him is no darkness at all. In the Greek, this is a double negative. Literally, it might read something like this. There is not no darkness in God. Now, that's terrible English, but that's great theology. There is absolutely no imperfection in God whatsoever. Hebert says it could read, and darkness in him not is not one bit. This stresses the absoluteness of his nature as light. In his being, there is not a single trace of darkness. Now, why is this important? It is important because we are to emulate his character. Ephesians 5.8, Paul wrote to his fellow believers, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In Colossians 1.13, Paul said, For he, God, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been transferred to the kingdom of light. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his 
marvelous light. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is addressing the day of the Lord, and he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. You are not of the night, nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Genuine believers are no longer part of the darkness. We are now children of light. Therefore, we must walk in that light. If we are following Christ, we will not walk in darkness, but we will walk in the light of life. Now, we spent a lot of time on this first point, but we need to move on. Verse 6 gives us a second element, which is the presumption. Look with me at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here we find the presumption of fellowship with God, but it turns out to be a false presumption. And there are three aspects to this. First, there is the claim. Notice the first phrase, if we say we have fellowship with him. Here's a person who claims to know God. They claim to be in fellowship with him. This is someone who has made a profession of faith in Christ. They are claiming that they have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. They are claiming that they have come out of the darkness and into the light. This is their claim. But notice, secondly, the conduct. Look at verse 6 again. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, there's a big difference between a profession and possession. There's a big difference between profession and practice. It's one thing to say something, it's another thing to live it. The word walk is a common biblical figure of speech to denote a lifestyle. It points to a habitual pattern of life. It is, in fact, a compound verb that includes the entire gamut of daily activity, including thoughts and deeds. And the Bible also lays out, the other side lays out the concept of darkness. That's Satan's domain. The scripture says, even in this book, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And some translations have in the power of darkness. And I've already pointed to Colossians 1.13, but remember it says, For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness... And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And yet, here we see some who make the claim that this is true of them, and yet they're still walking in darkness. First Peter 2.9 says, He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And yet, there are some who make this claim and still continue to walk in darkness. This doesn't match up. In Ephesians 5.8, Paul wrote, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. And yet there are some 
who claim this has happened to them are walking in the darkness and not in light. What's up with this? What's up with this? Practically speaking, walking in darkness means to continue to live like the world. It means to continue to live in sin and disobedience to God. It means to live a lifestyle that is contrary to a life of holiness. So the question is, how can someone who claims to be in fellowship with God continue to live in darkness? This leads us, thirdly, to the conclusion. What is John's conclusion? Are you ready for it? Buckle your seatbelt. Here it comes. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. These are the words of Scripture. This is God's word on the subject. If you continue, if you claim to be in fellowship with God and yet you continue to walk in darkness, you are a liar. According to God's word. The Apostle John does not mince any words here. He tells it like it is. He calls a spade a spade. And really what he's saying is, you are living a lie. You are deceiving yourself. You are claiming one thing, but the evidence of your life is pointing to something totally opposite. Now, please understand, those who are walking in the light are not perfect in this world. We're not talking about perfection here. In fact, John is going to deal with this problem next of someone thinking they have no sin. But the point here is that those who are truly in fellowship with God are those who have had a change of life. They're no longer walking as the course of life in darkness, but they're now walking in light. If there hasn't been a change of life, you have every reason to conclude you are not truly in fellowship with God. You have never truly been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son. Listen, my friend, you can walk down an aisle, you can make a profession of faith in Christ, but if there is no evidence of spiritual regeneration and a changed life, there is no reason to believe you are genuinely saved. Those who are truly in fellowship with God are those who are now walking in light. They're not walking in darkness anymore. You say, Pastor, help me with that. Exactly what does that look like? Well, I think Paul gives us a lot of insight into this in Ephesians chapter 5. So turn with me to Ephesians 5, just a moment. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, and let's look at verses 8 and 9. Here's what it says. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Okay, I get that. But what does that mean? Verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists in all, notice, goodness and righteousness, 
and truth. This is what it consists of. In fact, go on to verse 10. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Walking in light means living a life that exhibits goodness and righteousness. It means longing for the truth and not just any understanding of truth, learning to uh, learning what is pleasing to the Lord. This implies a love for God's truth. Listen, don't tell me you love God's truth if you never crack open your Bible. Don't tell me you love God's truth if you never sit under the teaching of Scripture. And don't tell me you're walking in light if there is no evidence of goodness and righteousness in your life. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect and that you never sin. But it does mean that there's going to be some tangible evidence that uh, you are now walking in light and you're no longer walking in darkness. It's not about what you profess. It's about what you possess. To profess one thing and and then to live in contradiction of that profession is to lie and not to practice the truth. If we walk in darkness, we cannot have fellowship with God. For what fellowship has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial? These are questions that Paul asked in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What's the obvious answer? There can be no fellowship between darkness and light, just as there can be no accord between Christ and Satan. Candlish calls the false profession of 1 John 1, 6 a practical lie. He says the profession of such a thing is a lie. He who makes it is not speaking, but acting an untruth. His life is a practical falsehood. He says, apart from anything I may say, my walking in darkness is in itself practical lying. I do not the truth. I am acting. I am not acting truly. Please understand This is not just an innocent mistake here. It is a conscious, deliberate lie. Hebert says, whenever there is a clear conflict between an individual's talk and his walk, it is always his walk and not his talk that reveals who he really is. Here's the truth. Not everyone who says he's a Christian is truly a Christian. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Just because you think you're going to heaven doesn't necessarily mean you are. There must be a legitimate basis for that claim. The question is, are you truly walking in the light? Are you no longer walking in darkness. It is impossible to have fellowship with God who is light and live a life of walking in darkness at the same time. It's impossible. Well, the good news is John doesn't end right here. He goes on to the other side. So in verse 7, we see the promise 
Look with me at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice the conjunction, but, makes the contrast clear. This is the correction of the false profession of verse 6. Make sure you're truly saved, John's saying. Make sure your profession of faith is genuine. How can you tell? By whether or not you're walking in the light. And the promise is, if you are truly walking in the light, you can have the assurance of your salvation. And this is the other thing that John is trying to accomplish here, is to give believers that might not be uh, totally sure about their salvation that sense of assurance. The promise is, if you're truly walking in light, you can have that assurance. There are three aspects to this promise. First, we see the contrast. Notice John says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. MacArthur points out that the concept of walking in the New Testament is connected not with justification, but with sanctification. So walking in light is not a way of securing salvation. It is a way of giving evidence to that reality. He says salvation is not only a change in one's legal status, as divine righteousness is credited to one's account through faith, but it is a change in behavior as actual righteousness is given to believers by the indwelling Spirit of God. In other words, the daily living of the Christian life is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore it is evidence that those who are living a righteous life are, in fact, indwelled by the Spirit of God. This is evidence of salvation. Those who are walking in the light are giving evidence that they have truly experienced spiritual regeneration and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. This is the contrast to those who are walking in darkness. But secondly, we see the connection here. Look at verse 7 again. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Not only does walking in the light give evidence that we are, in fact, in fellowship with God, but it also says we are in fellowship with other believers. Our walk has a horizontal dimension. We have fellowship with one another. And this, I believe, connects back to verse 3, where John said, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. But thirdly, there's the cleansing. The cleansing. Go back to verse 7 one more time. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. 
Now, scholars like to debate whether this cleansing is that of the initial cleansing of sin at the point of our justification or if it is the continual cleansing of progressive sanctification. But, folks, I'm not sure we need to make that distinction. Notice that John says the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. That would include the initial cleansing of our sins at the point in which we repent of our sin and and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone to save us. But it would also include that ongoing process of cleansing in which we deal with recurring sin as a believer. And when we get to verse 9, John is going to emphasize that kind of cleansing. But I believe that here in verse 7, he's speaking in categorical terms. All of our sin is dealt with when we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Hebert explains the word all there can be understood in two ways. First, it may denote the thoroughness of the cleansing from any sin, leaving no telltale smudge as a witness against us. In other words, when God cleanses our sin, there is absolutely nothing of it left. It is completely cleansed. It is thoroughly washed away. But there may be another aspect to this cleansing. The word all can also be viewed as representing the fact that there is absolutely no sin that God cannot cleanse. In other words, sin in all its various forms and manifestations are cleansed by the blood of Christ. All of them. This means there is never a sin that is too heinous or too evil that God cannot cleanse it that it cannot be cleansed by the atoning blood of Christ. His blood has the power to cleanse all sin, no matter how detestable it may seem. And, of course, the use of the word blood in the New Testament points to the entire atoning atoning death of Christ on the cross. It's not just pointing to Jesus' actual physical blood. It's used to represent his atoning death. And that atoning work has the power to cleanse us entirely. It not only has the power to cleanse us initially at the point of our justification, but it also has the power to cleanse us on a daily basis as we confess our sin to God. And we saw this precious promise in the book of Hebrews recently. But Hebrews 9, 13, and 14 declares, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices could provide a temporary cleansing from sin, the blood of the perfect Lamb of God provides an eternal and complete cleansing from sin. Well, how do we need to respond this morning? Well, we need to make sure we're walking in light, that we're no longer walking in the darkness. How do we do that? Take an honest look at our life. 
ask ourselves the hard questions. Has there truly been a change in my life as a result of my profession of faith in Christ? Or did I just go through the motions? Was it real? There is a big difference, folks, between walking in darkness and walking in light. We should be able to tell the difference. This is the first test. How are we doing with it? Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that uh, you would just by your Holy Spirit take the truth of your word and convict us with it. Lord, I pray that it would cause us to examine ourselves, to ask these hard questions. Are we truly born again? Is there a change? Is there evidence that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Are we walking in the light? Because, Lord, we know we can't have fellowship with you apart from that because you are light and in you there is no darkness at all. So, Lord, I pray that this would just be crystal clear to every person here today and that we might respond the way we need to according to the truth that we won't deceive ourselves and that we won't offer up any excuse, but that we'll deal honestly with our own hearts today. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.